Our scripture reading for this morning will be from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to turn there. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back, it's on page 976. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10 in chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. We've got good news to preach this morning, church. This is going to be a really good text. Um, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In fact, this whole first chapter really is nothing, and and even a large part of chapter 2 is nothing but good news. And we're just dipping into the middle of chapter 1 here this morning and getting the good news about what Jesus has done for us in executing God's great plan of redemption. Before we dive in this morning, I want us to think together about this idea that everyone has an interpretation of life. Would you agree with that? Everyone has a basic framework for understanding why we're here, what's gone wrong, how we fix it, where it's all headed. We're all interpreters. God has made us that way. He made us to make sense of our lives, to try to put things together. I mean, you just take a five-minute snapshot, right, of a living room or a workplace where a family is interacting or where coworkers are interacting, and you're going to hear people trying to make sense of their experience. And the primary way that we make sense of our experience and we interpret life is through story. And at the heart of... Of all of those stories, if we can understand what a person is thinking and feeling about their lives, we're going to get a narrative of how they believe life can be saved. What makes life worth living? Who am I? Why am I here? What's gone wrong? How do we fix it? It's a salvation narrative. We all live out of one, whether we're conscious of it or not. What do we need to figure that out, to figure out who we are, why we're here, what's gone wrong, how we fix everything? Well, we can go in one of two directions, really, can't we, ultimately? We can rely on ourselves and our instincts and our sense of right and wrong and our own sort of paradigm for understanding the universe. And that's a great, that requires great faith. A faith that's far greater than the biblical faith. Because you are literally resting the mysteries of the universe and resolving the mysteries of the universe in your brain. That requires tremendous religious commitment. Tremendous faith. And it's only rooted in one person. You. If we don't choose to go that route... 
we can go the route of looking outside of ourselves, right? And the key here is finding a reliable interpretation, an interpretation of life that actually fits with the way the world is. It makes sense of who we are, what our problem is, how, how things get solved. And I will argue that you will find no more complete, holistic answer to that question than in the Christian faith. Because if there was another more plausible understanding of who we are, what the problem is, and how we fix it all, I would not be a Christian pastor and preacher. Mark that down. I really wouldn't be. If there is another worldview, another paradigm, another understanding that comes along that is more reliable, more tested, more trustworthy than God's word, I'll abandon God's word and go somewhere else because that's obviously not God's word. But obviously, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that we have a definitive, infallible, inerrant interpretation of life, the universe, what's gone wrong, how we fix it all in the scriptures. And especially here in Ephesians chapter 1. So, brothers and sisters, we have two routes we can go. We can rely on ourselves. We can look outside of ourselves and rely upon a reliable revelation from God to explain the mysteries of the universe. That's what we have in the Bible. That's what we specifically have in Ephesians chapter 1. And just a word of advice, it's usually better to rely upon the Creator's wisdom rather than your own. Just take that, put it in your back pocket. And we have this idea expressed here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. If you'll just look at the beginning of that verse there, it says that God has made known to us or is making known to us the mystery of his will. See, wisdom and insight and understanding of God's will only comes from God. Since he has to reveal his purposes, he has to explain himself and allow us to see into the true nature of things. Now, this word mystery here is not the way we typically throw around the word mystery. You know, we typically, it's a problem to be solved. It's, you know, who did it, you know, in the crime novel, what happened there with mystery novels, all that stuff. A mystery is a is in some ways related to that, but it's not, an exclu- it's, not a, it's not a problem necessarily to solve. What a mystery is biblically is, is a, it's a disclosure of a previously hidden secret. All right? So it's the revelation of something that was previously known only vaguely, but now it's more fully known in light of further revelation that God has given us. See, in the Old Testament... God had this same purpose that he's revealing here in Ephesians chapter 1, to sum up and unite everything into Christ. But we only saw that in a small form. And it gets progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament. And then eventually in the New Testament, Christ comes and starts preaching. We're like, oh, now I understand that previously hidden secret. I understand it more fully. Because Jesus has come and explained it to us. And then, of course, Paul, as one of his Jesus' disciples, picks up on that and just further explains it. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is laying out here every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. And his goal is as we understand the gospel, the good news of Christianity, in its most holistic sense, that we'll be led to worship God. 
That's his goal. That's his objective. He wants to get these Ephesians and us at Heritage this morning worshiping, worshiping Jesus, worshiping the Father, worshiping the Spirit for every spiritual blessing that we have from them. So last week we saw the first two of those blessings in verses 3 to 6, that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and that we have been predestined for adoption by God the Father. That was all God the Father's activity before history. And now what verses 7 to 10 do is give us two more blessings focused on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in history. So whereas whereas verses 3 to 6 open up the Father's plan before history and the blessings he's given us before time, Verses 7 through 10 transition into the Son of God and his provision for that plan. Because as Jonathan said last week, there is no adoption without cross work. So the Father sends the Son to accomplish. See, the Father just can't choose us and adopt us into his family without the Son coming and redeeming us. And that's what we're going to see this morning. The son comes to redeem and accomplish what the father planned. And this stage that we're going to look at in verses 7 through 10 is all about God's saving purposes on the plane of history. This is stuff that's happened already, at least in verses 7 to 8. And verses 9 and 10 is what's coming. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the two kind of phases of our redemption. We have this first phase of Christ's redemption in verses 7 through 8, 7 and 8. And that is our present individual forgiveness, which is a reality right now for all of us who are Christians, all of us who are in Christ. And then verses 9 and 10 focus on our future redemption, what's going to come at the second coming of Christ when he sums up all things and resolves all things in the fullness of time. So two Blessings that come from our redemption in Christ, which are meant to lead us to praise God and leave here with our toes tapping. So here we go. We're going to look at these two, uh, two phases of redemption or two blessings of redemption one at a time. Okay, so the first one we're going to look at is our present individual redemption in verses 7 and 8. And then the second point of the sermon is going to be our future cosmic redemption, which is going to be in verses 9 and 10. All right, so here we go. Present individual redemption. You guys ready for some good news? Let's get into it. All right. Present individual redemption, verses 7 and 8. Let's read these verses again. In him, that is in Christ, in the beloved, verse 6 says, which is a reference to Jesus. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We have redemption, present tense reality. Now, what's this word redemption mean? Very important word. Redemption has to do, it's a very important biblical word. It has to do with the purchase back of something that has been lost through the payment of a ransom. The idea is that something has been taken captive, namely God's creation and God's people, through the reign of sin entering into it through the fall. So we're going back to Genesis 3 here. God creates the world. God creates man and woman in his image. It doesn't take too long before we blow it royally by listening to the wrong authority. We listen to Satan rather than to God. We're deceived. Our creation is plunged into sin. And therefore, with sin comes death, comes captivity, comes bondage to that sin. 
which eventually will take us all to the grave. And so what God does is he plans in Christ a form of redemption by which his creation and his people will be liberated from that bondage to sin and set free through the payment of a ransom. So God cursed his creation. Now God has to pay a ransom payment to himself to get his creation out from under his own curse. And that's what he does in Christ. God sends Christ to pay a ransom to purchase his creation, which was lost, and his people who are lost back to himself. Mark 10, 45, Jesus sums it up so clearly. The Son of Man, a title that Jesus gave often to himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. He, Jesus came consciously entering into the world with a disposition to serve, knowing that the ultimate extension or end of that service would be the offering of his life as a ransom. He knew he was on a redemptive mission. And the text makes it clear that our present redemption is accomplished in him. It says it in two ways in verse 7. Notice that. It says, in him we have redemption. No other redemption outside of Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone we have redemption. And notice that redemption is through his blood. It's through his cross work. We don't get redeemed apart from union with Christ. And Christ doesn't accomplish redemption apart from dying for us in our place on the cross under the wrath of God for our sin. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 with Jonathan mentioned earlier at the beginning of our time together. It says he has delivered us. From the domain of darkness. This is talking about God the Father. God the Father has delivered us. That's redemption. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That is the realm of sin and death. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. So Colossians 1, 13, 14 makes it crystal clear how God the Father accomplishes this redemption. It is through the blood of Christ, the sacrificial death, the ransom price paid for our redemption. Revelation 1, 5 makes this equally clear. Listen to this verse. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There it is. Galatians 3, 13 again underscores this as well. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus enters into our world to bear our curse, to bear our sin, to take away God's judgment, thereby freeing us and enabling us to be redeemed and released from our captivity. Now, what has this redemption accomplished in our lives right now? That is a present tense reality for all of us who are in Christ. Paul makes it crystal clear here in verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, comma, and here's the explanation of the redemption we have, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Man, that's good news. Isn't that good news to hear in light of the week you just had? It's really, really good news. What's a trespass? Anybody ever trespassed anything? We had a, we had a uh, yard behind our, we lived in a neighborhood when I was growing up in Louisville. And uh, we used, I mean, man, the, the story of my life is no trespassing signs as a child. I mean, I'm riding my bike everywhere. You know, we're trying to find a football field somewhere around here where we can get a game going. You know, we're trying to, 
you know, all of our, all the neighborhood kids were running around and, and man, if we didn't confront a no trespassing sign everywhere we tried to go, it, it, it would surprise me and we'd be thrilled. And I don't think I even knew what trespassing meant back then. I'm just like, oh, we're not supposed to play there. It says no, but I don't think I understood what trespass meant, but what did they mean by that? They mean, don't come over this fence and get and play your ball in this yard, right? You're not allowed to do that. You need to stay in your area not in our area. And that's exactly what God's alluding to here in terms of our trespasses. A trespass is just a deliberate and willful violation of a boundary. That's all it is, right? Here's the fence. Here's the sign. Don't go over it. Well, God's done that. God's laid out boundaries. He's given us his will. He's told us what he wants from us. And every single one of us has said, nope, to whatever degree in our lives, we have chosen to go beyond God's boundaries. God's not going to tell me what to do with my life. God's not going to tell me how to think. He's not going to tell me how to feel. He's not going to direct me and tell me what my plan is. He's certainly not going to tell me who I can and can't marry. He's not going to tell me about anything, I, you know, any kind of purpose that I should have. I need to figure that out on my own. So we, by nature, don't want to submit to God's boundaries. We want to go our own way. And what, what this verse tells us is that in Christ, God's forgiven us of all those. That it's all wiped away. That all of our trespasses, that all of the guilt and condemnation and wrath of the law that those trespasses deserve have been canceled in Jesus Christ. And we are no longer obligated to pay the debt for them. We are no longer obligated to pay for our sins. We have literally had our bail paid and the jail's been opened and we are free. And our record has been burned up and replaced with the righteous record of Jesus Christ himself. So that when God goes in and pulls out our record, it's like, we're okay, because we all got criminal records in heaven, right? Just some of them have been espunged and blood has covered them. But when God goes to our file, In heaven, if you're in Christ right now and pulls that file out, no trespasses are on it. In fact, not even no trespasses, a completely righteous, obedient record to the law is there. This guy has, I mean, I remember I got pulled over one time, uh, uh, speeding or wobbling as I had a tendency to do. No alcohol under under, under the circumstances here. But, you know, messing with the radio or whatever, it's late at night and officer pulls me over and comes over. And uh, at that time in my life, I had never gotten a speeding ticket that, that didn't, that has since happened, um, along with, along with various other seatbelt and parking violations to go along with it, which I have paid off. But the, uh, but at the time I didn't have any, um, I didn't have any, uh, things. And, and he came up to the, to the side of the door and he knocked on, you know, knocked on the window and rolled it. I think I already had it down or something. Then he, he got my license, registration, insurance, went back and came back and he's like, dude, you don't have anything. Like he was totally surprised. Like, you mean you've never like had anything? I'm like, you might be the first. <laughs> and uh, he let me go, you know, whatever. But he was like so surprised. But I mean, it's just like the, the, the story is, is that, you know, the, the point of that is that it's, it's, if it's rare to an officer, it's not rare to God. Okay. God knows we all, all, all have innumerable trespasses that we have violated. And none of us has a clean record. Um, before God. 
And, but here's the good news is that in Christ, we get that clean record. We get that slate wiped clean and we get it replaced forever by the record of Jesus Christ himself. And notice where all this comes from. I haven't even gotten to the good news yet. This text has more good news. I mean, I haven't even scratched the surface. Notice where it comes from. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's where it comes. Now, he's describing the, the absolute sheer inexhaustible nature of God's giving and forgiveness to us. He's trying to help us tap into just how wonderful this is. And he says, the forgiveness of our trespasses are according to the riches of his grace. They're not just out of the riches of his grace. It's not like God said, okay, how much is this forgiveness going to cost me? And then he pays it. But he's the wealthiest being in the universe. So like a $14 trillion person gave $100 to a charity. No, this is saying it's according to his riches. He, his forgiveness is so great, gracious and so lavish and so incalculable in its abundance and extravagance to us, it can't even be put into words. God has poured his grace unsparingly on us. It's according to his riches. I mean, there are numerous passages that point out just how wonderful and profound our forgiveness is. Just listen to a few of these. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I mean, isn't that riches of his grace? Isn't that seemingly go beyond even what he needed to do? But no, he assures us that as far as the east is from the west, you can't get any further than that. That's the point of the analogy. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's not like just from here to Thruston Dermot. No, it's as far as the east is from the west. Micah seven nineteen. he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Jesus has stomped your sin into the ground. You will, he, will, he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Anybody know the deepest point in the Pacific Ocean? The Mariana Trench. I don't, I've forgotten how specifically some of you uh, scientists out there could probably tell me. But it's the deepest point, multiple miles deep down into the uh, Pacific Ocean. And uh, your sins are deeper than that as far as God's casting of them. They are, they are so far down. I mean, you can't even get you know, several hundred feet below the surface of the water without, you know, life being significantly threatened. And I'm talking about with all your scuba gear and all that stuff too. But God has put them so far. I mean, there's no way they're going to be found again. No way. They're in the depths of the sea. Isaiah 38, 17, in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction for you have cast all my sins behind your back. God's not looking at your sin anymore, church. That's not the most fundamental reality of your life to him. I mean, some of us wake up feeling like that, right? The main thing God sees about me is my sin. That is not true. 
That is not the, now he sees your sin, right? But the point is, is that he's like, I'm done with that. Let's move on to a work of redemption, to a work of grace, to a future in which we will dwell together. I mean, he's put our sins behind his back. They are not preoccupying his gaze. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. I mean, it's, this is, it's obstructing his vision, right? I mean, it's real cloudy. Can't see the sun. You know, it's like kind of hidden behind. But he's like, no, that's the way. I put clouds in between your transgressions and myself. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist return to me for I have redeemed you. So he's cast, he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's tread our iniquities underfoot. He's cast them into the depths of the sea. He's put them behind his back. He's blotted them out. Isn't that wonderful news? That's the according to his riches that we're talking about. That God's grace and his forgiveness of our trespasses is so much greater than we could ever put into words. And it's incalculable in its abundance and extravagance. And let me say to all of us here, some of you who are perhaps weary of your sin. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ. You don't know where you stand with God. And you're like, will God ever take me in? Will, will God, God, will God, um, will God forgive my trespasses? I mean, I, I understand, you know, him being able to forgive other people, but can he really forgive me? And I just want to say, yes, absolutely. He has forgiven worse than you. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says along the lines for your encouragement. Listen to this as I allow him to preach for just a moment. Speaking to people who feel the weight of their sin and don't know if God's forgiveness is for them. He says, ah, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. I can hear their trampings now as they traverse the rich and great arches of the bridge of salvation. They come by their thousands, by their myriads. Ever since the day when Christ first entered into his glory, they come. And yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners and some have come at the very last of their days. But the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go then with them, trusting to the same support. It will bear me over as it has borne them. And that's absolutely true. God's grace and his riches and his ability to forgive are greater than our ability to sin. Where sin abounds, grace super abounds. And notice, God did this. In all wisdom and insight. He says again at the um, beginning of verse 8. Which he lavished upon us. There's that expressive, expansive richness of God's grace and forgiveness that he's given to us. He has lavished it. He's poured it out. He has emptied himself as it were. Pouring on us the riches of his grace. And he's done this in all wisdom and insight. Now this phrase in all wisdom and insight is a bit of a confusing phrase. Um, it's confusing because it's uncertain grammatically whether or not it's, a, it's attached to um, the word lavish or it's attached to the next verse, making known. In other words, 
is in wisdom and insight, is that referring to the way in which God has lavished grace on us, or is it referring to the way God makes known his will and plan to us? It's a difficult thing, and commentators are split in their understanding of how that works it out. The good news is, is that, um, you know, when, when, when we run into tensions like this in the Bible and grammatically we can't kind of figure it out, usually both are true. Are, they're both true statements. It's just like, which one is true in this particular text? And so I'm not going to be definitive about this. I tread a little lightly here on being definitive in this interpretation, but I think it goes with lavished. In other words, what I think is, is, is happening here is that this is, again, Paul explaining to us just how glorious our forgiveness is. And he's saying that God has not only forgiven all your trespasses, but he's lavished it on you. It's according to his riches and it's done in all wisdom and insight, which means God has done it knowing full well who he's forgiving. He has no, he knows every, he knows every sin you're ever going to commit up to your dying day before you were ever born And yet he still chose you, predestined you to adoption, forgave you of your sins, redeemed you in Christ, lavished his grace upon you. Isn't that good news? He knew all about you. He knew all the sins that you would commit. And yet he still grants his wisdom, his, sorry, his grace to you in spite of the wisdom and insight he has into me. Think of that. In his wisdom, he knows more about the nature and horror of your trespasses than you will ever know. And he is wise enough to know that what will be needed to compensate for that wrong is the death of his son, Jesus. He understands that your trespasses will require the blood of his son to cancel your debt. And yet he still redeems you. He still cancels your sin. And he still gives Christ's righteousness as your own and adds it to your account and credits it to you. It's amazing. That God, in his wisdom and insight into us, nevertheless chose to lavish his grace upon us according to the riches of his, gra- his grace, forgiving us all of our trespasses. And that is never going to change for you, Christian, ever. All, to all eternity, the constant banner over your life by God is forgiven of your trespasses. Forgiven. Even the sins you're going to commit tomorrow and this week and this month and this year and 10 years from now and 15 years from now, however long it will be, past, present, and future, all your sins are done away with in the redemption through Christ's blood. That's good news. So that is the present individual forgiveness, and that's part of our redemption that we have. But there is even more good news coming, and that's where we transition to verses 9 and 10 and briefly look at the future cosmic redemption that is coming. Because if you just thought God's redemptive plan concerned you and your sin, you're sadly mistaken. Christ didn't just Christ just didn't die to just purchase a people. He died to purchase a universe with his people. His blood and his cross work was not just enough to redeem or was not just worth enough to redeem an incalculable multitude. It was worth espunging sin from the Milky Way. The unity, and we'll see this in verses 9 and 10, so let's read it together. Making known to us, this is part of our redemption. God has made this known to us. The mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven 
and things on earth. There's the universal scope of redemption, the cosmic scope. The goal is that in the fullness of time, and that's a reference to Christ's second coming, he will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So all things are going to be united in Jesus. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand something of what's happened to the cosmos, what's happened to creation itself. The unity and harmony of the cosmos has experienced a significant dislocation, even a rupture that requires reconciliation and restoration to bring it back into harmony. The original creation that God had made, including all the heavens and the earth, was intended to function and flourish under Adam, the first man, the first head of creation. By virtue of his sin, the universe has gone off its rails. It's gone into chaos. Now, God's plan and God's involvement is still here, which is why there's order and why there's a degree of predictability to our lives that we can expect the sun to come up, right? Because God has pledged himself still to his creation and he is involved with his creation. But nevertheless, it's gone awry. I mean, we wouldn't, if we, knowing what we know about our world today, we would not say it is in any degree of holistic harmony. I mean, I'm just not even talking about on the people level. I'm talking about on the natural level and every other level. So by virtue of Adam's sin, the universe has gone into disharmony, but God's plan is to restore it to its original harmony. And he does that through a second Adam, a new man, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to bring together all things and restore the whole creation under the headship of Christ. Because Adam lost it. Adam blew it. Now God's redemptive plan is to purchase back paradise lost. To regain his creation through the the, the headship of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who's come to fix what Adam, the first son, failed to do. So Christ is the one in whom God has chosen to sum up the cosmos. The one in whom he restores harmony in the universe. And the mystery that Paul is talking about in verse 9, that he has made known to us, that God has graciously revealed to us, is this idea that God is summing up and bringing together the fragmented and alienated elements of the universe in Christ as the focal point. So God's saving purposes for all of eternity, when he chose us in Christ, he had this in view. This ultimate redemptive plan where he would sum up all of creation to his glory in Christ. The fall happened so that Christ could one day be the focal point of a redeemed creation. Now I'm dropping some heavy stuff on us this morning. This is deep into the pool, but I don't get to pick the text. So, I mean... You should feel for me and pray for me when I have to dip into stuff like this. Because this is hard. This is not easy to understand. This is like huge. This is the biggest thing we could be talking about this morning. But the, here, just to sum it up quickly, and I hope simpl- simply, even though not simplistically, we can't do that with a passage like this. But Paul proclaims here that the assurance to us that the problem of sin and rebellion that is currently characteristic of this creation, the disharmony and chaos and brokenness of our world, 
the dislocation and rupture that has taken place, will one day be dealt with by a decisive intervention of God when Christ returns. And then it's all going to be okay. And everything sad is going to come untrue. And the good news is that this intervention is already underway because Christ has come and his redemptive work is going on. He is right now gathering his people, redeeming them through the blood of his son, forgiving their trespasses in anticipation of that day. So you know what our, our redemption right now is? The fact that we've been forgiving of our trespasses? That's a means to an end. Do you know that? The forg- God's forgiveness of you is not an end in itself. It's a means. He forgives you so he can get you to there. So he can get you to the cosmos where Christ is the head and in which you won't be consumed because you're under judgment. So he's bringing you to a, a renewed and new creation in Christ, a new earth, a new heavens, in which we will live in bodily form, redeemed and restored and glorified, free from disharmony, free from rupture, free from dislocation, free from brokenness, free from sin. And he's going to act one day, once and for all, to bring under control all the rebellious creation. And he's going to do it in and through Christ. All who resist, both human and spiritual forces, are going to be subjugated and no longer allowed to oppose God in active and hostile defiance. And those who go into eternity in active and hostile defiance to God, or those who, when Christ returns, are in active and hostile defiance to God, they are not going into that cosmos. This is not teaching universalism. It isn't. It's teaching that all things will be united in Christ and Christ is going to make sure that happens by judgment and salvation. So Christ is the solution to the problem of the universe. Both now personally with individuals and cosmically. Christ has begun to exercise his headship right now over the powers, but there will come a time when all of creation will have to submit to his authority as sovereign Lord. And notice, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, which means that when Christ returns, all will be made right when Jesus comes in sight. The inanimate creation, that is, the earth in which we live, which is affected by sin. How do we know it's affected by sin? Because floods happen and earthquakes happen and tornadoes happen in an animal world that's hostile to humanity and humanity. So it's, it's this whole inanimate creation, the hostility between the animal world, the terrors of the natural phenomena, all that is going to be wiped away and redeemed in Christ. There will be no more of the earth heaving and groaning, waiting for its redemption because its redemption will have come. We as God's chosen people will be saved and reconciled and redeemed fully. We will enter into the fullness of our redemption, receiving a glorified body. Also, the unfallen angelic host, those angels that have not fallen, those, those that are in the spiritual realm that exist to serve us, according to Hebrews 1.14, they're going to take part in redemption too because it's a, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a hassle for angels to minister to us right now. I mean, that's the idea. They have to enter into a fallen creation. They have to leave heaven. 
I mean, you say, how can holy elect angels receive reconciliation? I mean, they're, they're holy. They're blameless. They don't have any sin. Well, the fact is, is that the ministry of angels brings them in constant contact with sin and its evil and corrupting effects, according to Hebrews 1.14. They are ministering spirits sent out to those who will inherit salvation. They care for us. Angels are disposed by God to watch over us and, 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 and serve as God's emissaries to help us. And yet, it's a disheartening and disturbing necessity that they have to minister within such a fallen world and the holy angels will one day be released from that. And they won't have to do that anymore. So it isn't so much that they're personally redeemed and reconciled. They have no sin. They have no need for that. But they are holy. But, and Jesus didn't die for them. But their release, their redemption, quote unquote, will be into unqualified purity and beauty of the new heavens and the new earth as a fruit of the reconciliation that Christ has effected through the cross. They're going to get benefit from that because they'll get to live in the new heavens and the new earth with us. And then the fallen demonic angels and the unsaved non-elect will perish forever in hell away from the presence of God. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25 make this crystal clear. Then comes the end when Christ returns, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And by the way, that's all spiritual, okay? And it includes the unredeemed. So it's not exclusively spiritual, but it's, it's, it's focused on that. For he must reign, that is Jesus, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So this, this summing up that Christ is going to do, this unifying of creation of the new heavens and the new earth is going to be affected at the return of Christ. And Christ is going to unite in himself his whole universe and his whole church under his cosmic headship where the Prince of Peace will reign forever and ever unrivaled as he puts all of his enemies under his feet and lays all of his people at his feet. It's good news. Watch Fox News differently. Okay? That's one application. Interpret things that are happening around the world differently. You have a certain and secure redemption coming that ISIS cannot overturn. That no, nothing's going nothing's to change this, all right? You can choose not to believe it. You will one day. All right? Everybody's going to be convinced that Jesus is king one day. That the cosmic Christ is real. And so what we get as God's people now is the assurance, not only the peace giving assurance that all of our sins are forgiven, they're never going to meet us in the day of judgment, that we have no fear of ever, of God ever pulling them out of the depths of the sea or bringing them out from behind his back to judge us and condemn us. We have this certain hope that everything is going to be made right. And all that, all that is right now that is so racking our world with disharmony and disruption and rupture will one day be completely done away with and fulfilled in the summing up of all things in heaven and on earth and in Christ. And all we can do is pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So let's go ahead and do that as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for your purpose to redeem. Thank you for your obedience to the Father's plan that 
Father, your choosing and electing of us and your predestining purpose to adopt us, you sent your son to fulfill it, to accomplish it. And Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning, not only, but certainly for the forgiveness of all of our trespasses, past, present, and future in you. But we also look forward to this reconciling and redeeming and uniting of all things in you. We've just touched the surface. There are depths and complexities here, Lord Jesus, that we don't understand. Even though you have given us insight and wisdom into understanding the mystery of your will, we still express to you, God, there's a lot of mystery here. But we thank you that when we can't understand you, we know you're good and we trust you. And the things that you have revealed are for us and they are enough for us. And we thank you that you've told us even more than sometimes we feel we even need to know. You've given us so much good news. Thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would finish your work. Help us to be about your mission to complete that work. And we pray that you would come quickly and come soon. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.